The following Dharma talk was given for the Insight Meditation Community of Charlottesville, Virginia. Please visit our website at imeditation.org. So this journey of practicing with emotion. One of the challenges that we bump into uh, often in um, when we're trying to kind of integrate Buddhist psychology and Western psychology is, is language, words, you know. And it can be very confusing be, because words are used differently and they mean different things. And if we don't understand that, you know, we, we just get all kind of bollocked up. Um, words like mind or emotion actually mean quite different things. And so um, part of the talk will be to try to unpack that a little bit and give us a little bit of a framework, even if the framework is simply to understand that words mean difficult, different things. Um, one of my amusing quotes is from um, Lewis Carroll, where Alice asks the Red Queen, she says, the question is, said Alice, whether you can make words mean so many different things. You know, just like these elusive little, like my husband when he fishes and you try to hang on to a fish and these elusive little fishes, um, uh, especially the word emotion, it means so many different things. So does mind. In Buddhist terms, mind often refers to the fundamental, pure, infinite, open, spacious awareness that we've been touching into. So, and that some of you referenced in your, even in your comments last night, mind. This is John McCransky. He says, the fundamental nature of mind is our fundamental innate awareness. Innate awareness. This pure awareness is the ground of all experience, all our thoughts, feelings, and perceptions. As such, it is naturally all-inclusive and wide open. Our dualistic thoughts, feelings, and perceptions, um, our dualistic, excuse me, our dualistic thinking process tends to limit our attention to a very narrow sense of self as subject that seems to stand completely apart from others as object. Yet our fundamental pure awareness, even as it gives rise to these dualistic thoughts, is a vast expanse of knowing that transcends all such limitations, unfettered by thoughts. So this, you know, just mind. That's what, when Buddhists talk about mind, that's what we mean, mostly, by mind. But in Western terms, mind is much more constrained. Um, it's this thing that happens inside here. Uh, it's much more limited in its meaning um, uh, to, to something that happens inside what is perceived as an individual subject, an individual person. And emotion is similarly variable um, to mind. Um, indeed, in, in Western psychology, um, if a researcher proposes a working definition of emotion, there was a study that was done, they, they um, uh, uh, surveyed the 34 top Western scientists who study emotion. And they said, 
what is motion? And there were 34 different answers. So even Western scientists who are studying this thing that happens in here have 34 different perspectives on it. I think, I, I think of it sort of like um, you know, the, the different views of the elephant. You know? And sometimes they can get quite heated about which one is the correct one. In both cases, though, in both Eastern psychology and Western psychology, neither mind nor emotion, even in, even in Western psychology, neither mind nor emotion are things. Take a little moment to wrap our minds around that, because sometimes we tend to think of emotion as a thing that happens, and it's like this, and it's like this for you, and it's like this for me, and you know, this, it's like this. But even in Western psychology, um, at least in the last several decades, maybe before then, it was considered a thing. But it's, it's not considered a thing. Um, Phyllis was referencing last night. Um, I'm going to talk a little bit about Western psychology, and then we'll try to integrate it back into Buddhist psychology a bit. That in the brain alone, in just this little thing up here, up here, we have 90 billion neurons. I don't know how they counted them. Maybe it's 92, I don't know. Um, that are capable of communicating information back and forth, just up here, huh? about our internal and external worlds. They're constantly monitoring what's going on internally, constantly monitoring what's going on externally. And at any, at any given moment, this is what Phyllis was referencing last night, 11 million, I told her wrong last night, I said billion, 11 million of those are actively communicating. So right now, you know, it's just a lot of stuff going on, 11 million times, you know, 21 people. We've got a lot of information going on back and forth here. And scientists say that 41 of those are conscious. Tim Wilson, researcher Tim Wilson says, are the ratio of conscious mind, conscious awareness, to unconscious, pre-conscious and unconscious, is like a snowball sitting on top of a glacier. So this, you know, this kind of conscious mind with which we mostly identify is, first of all, it's inside this case, this dress that we have, you know, it's inside this place. And secondly, it's this little snowball that's sitting on top of a glacier. So really a very, very small percentage of all of the data that's available to us, no matter how you, no matter how you look at it. Its purpose in human, just human evolution terms, this mind, you know, the, the, the sort of the general purpose of this operating system is to pay attention to this and not that, to kind of select what to pay attention to, because this and not that is important, uh, is pleasant, unpleasant, good for me, bad for me, get ready to do something, get ready to act, go toward it, it's berries, go eat it, it's a lion or a tiger, run away. You know, so it's, it's like there's this whole system whose who's, uh, kind of biological purpose 
is to discern what's important to pay attention to and what do we do about it. Hmm. Furthermore, the mind as, it's, as we're coming to understand it over the last decade or two in Western science is that the mind is considered to be not just this thing, but this whole thing. You hear people talking about the second brain. That's literally, literally a brain in our gut. Not just like figuratively, but literally a brain in our gut that's communicating back and forth. And actually even that gets more nuanced where there's this continual communication between our sensory experience and our sense of things and the brain you know, our sense of things, you know, the antelope now in the, in the wild kind of goes and it kind of alerts the brain who then says, uh-oh, you know, and then the uh-oh goes back down, and, you know, and it's just there's this continual communication among all of this information flow in, in this body. It's very, very fluid. So this mind, if you will, and indeed these emotions, are part of this information gathering process. Uh, just this, just in in this kind of Western conception, um, that's basically a big probability computing operation. You know, the probability of this is happening, what does it mean? What does it probably mean? And what's the probable outcome and what probably should I do about it? And those ancestors of ours who had good probability operational equipment managed to survive long enough to kind of pass on both their genes and their experience to us. So emotions are really part of this probability assessment procedure, if you will. Trying to give us information about what's going on and what should we do about it. Just in Western sense, just pure survival. Furthermore, our brains do not just work, this is a quote, our brains do not just work from sensory data, but instead they construct predictions based on past experience. Perception works not by building up bits of captured data, but by matching expectations to incoming sensory data, so that we're matching not only what's happening here, but now we have this whole sense of expectation that's built on our history. And now this little snowball, uh, if you will, is perceiving what's coming in through our previous understandings of what the probabilities were, whether or not they were successful. And so we're you know, continually constricting and constricting and constricting and constricting the data 
So now it's not only what data is available to me, or actually for that matter, to all of us, but now I'm constricting the data based on how I have perceived it to be in the past. Hence, my experience of this might be very different from yours because I am selectively perceiving data depending on whatever map I have constructed probably since I was in the womb. You know, I've started to construct a map of friendly voices and, you know, good experiences, bad experiences. So I have these maps that I've been constructing and I then perceive everything else that's coming in through my own map. Hence, we can all have very different senses and emotional responses to all, you know, to what seem like exactly the same data. Furthermore, Dan Siegel notes that this flow of all this information process is heavily influenced by the state of the being at the time of sensing. So that our mental states profoundly influence our construction of reality, how we interpret the reality. The Buddha noticed that when he's sitting um, near death uh, at the well with Sujata, and he says, I, I, I'm, first of all, I'm going to die because I'm starving to death, and secondly, I can't even think straight. You know, I'm eating one grain of rice a day, I can't think straight. I need some food. It's okay to take in food. So that he, he saw that his own mental state was affecting his ability to actually perceive clearly what was going on. So that's what Dan Siegel's pointing to, that our ability, you know, how we perceive data is, is affected by how much sleep we've had and how many Cheerios we've had for breakfast and all, you know, all kinds of things, whether or not we've just had a, you know, unpleasant phone call from, you know, Aunt Eloise. Um, furthermore, our state of mind and emotion is influenced by, um, well, I've said that, the physical bodies. Um, the, it appears to privilege negative information. You've heard that. Um, so that we process negative information, threats, a little bit more quickly than we do positive information. Um, it's getting in faster and... Um, uh, having a, a little bit more influence on our overall emotional state, our state of mind. Um, and finally, our brains, for similar reasons, I shouldn't say finally, there's probably one out, you know, more. Um, for similar reasons, they dislike uncertainty and confusion. They take bits of data, uh, and based on past experience, and on all these sort of, on this little snowball, you know, and past experience, cleverly and more often than we realize, simply make things up. <laughs> um, that the brain has a capacity, indeed the eyes have a capacity, there are like empty spots on the retina, and the, the brain just makes it in, makes it up. Um, it fills in the blanks, if you will. Um, 
so that if there's missing data, we sort of fill in the blanks according to whatever our past experience was, um, and therefore that's what this is. And we know we know how how that works. I had an exchange with a friend the other day, and I absolutely did not know what was happening. <clears throat> and I was just watching my, my mind, you know, try to fill in the blanks. Well, maybe it's this. Well, maybe it's that. Well, maybe it's the other thing. And indeed, any one of those making myself miserable with it. Um, you know, you know that place where you go into the end furthermore? You know? Um, when the fact of the matter was, I did not know what was happening. You know? I just didn't know. And so it's sort of like, honey, it's okay, brain. Just chill. It's all right. Even though, you know, we can sort of see the operation of it trying to fill in, you know, we just don't know. So our emotions are part of this information, of this selected information gathering, fluid process of storage and retrieval. Emotions result from a complex system of feedback loops. Complex, very complex system, constant feedback loops of information uh, from our internal body states. You know, how much sleep I've had last night, how hungry I am, how tired I am how stressed I am, from our sense contact with the apparently external world, from our felt sense of the relative pleasantness or unpleasantness of that data, all of that data, and from our current and past perceptions and cognitive appraisals of it all. It's heavily influenced by our relational experience, both past and present, which is to say that whatever kind of constellations important uh, relationships have brought to us. We were talking last night about the quality of presence uh, and that the quality of presence dramatically affects the capacity to integrate and the, and the actual form of the integration of all of that information. So it's heavily influenced by our, relations, our, our, our relational experience and all of these interact constantly to provide information about what's going on and what we should do about it, about what's probably going on and what probably we should do about it. So emotions are, are not, and there's actually a bit of a paradigm shift, little footnote, that's happening almost even as we speak. Um, there's a bit of a rather heated controversy going on in the field of emotion uh, where in the past people have been talking about emotion as kind of localized in you know different places in the brain and the amygdala or as emotion as having sort of characteristic neural patterns and what people are beginning to say is that even that's not true that emotions actually don't have characteristic no don't have either the same characteristic neural patterns from time to time to time in me, nor the same neural patterns from me to you, you know, that they're just, there's much more fluidity to it than even that, than many of the neuroscientists um, have been um, speaking of. So you see, you know, well, you know, this happens in the prefrontal orbital globity gluc cortex something, and, and people are saying, oh, actually that's not true, you know, that it's much more fluid and that there's much more uh, of a kind of whole 
process going on than any kind of really specific thing-like process. Um, so there's some controversy about that. But I really like that because to me, that sounds a lot more like what the Buddha is teaching. So therefore I like it. So emotion consists of, as far as we know, different parts of the brain playing together, along with those different parts playing with different parts of the body, DNA, our temperament, our hormones, the state of our hormones, our sleep status, our nutritional status, our relational status, the intuitive and non-cognitive senses of the body, that kind of energetic sense or intuitive sense. That's three so far. Four, feeling states, whether things are pleasant, unpleasant, or neutral. Five, our personal history, our familiar, our, our personal history, our family history, what we've learned from our relationships and our family, our cultural history, what culture says, it's this, not that. Some cultures don't even have words for emotions. Um, that they're not distinct from mind states. Our thoughts and our habitual narratives about all of this. Uh, and our habitual orientations to each of these in terms of our own hungers, um, our mental filters, you know, preferences, what we like, what we don't like. So there's really a lot going on when we, when we start to kind of inquire into emotions and what's wholesome and what's not. As humans, um, because we kind of need to simplify things a bit, we come to imagine that our, mind, that our mind, our sensations, the resulting perceptions and emotions that flow through our experience, we come to imagine that they give us an accurate picture of life out there and in here. Have you ever noticed that? You know, that an emotion will come up and it's true. Am I the only one who's ever had that experience, you know? You know, it's true. It's like this. So we come to imagine that our own mm, little version of reality and the emotions and perceptions and stories that support that, that that is how it is. And it can be really quite daunting. I mean, you just take, you know, a, a close relationship, you know. Where should the forks go, <laughs> you know? You know, just mundane kinds of things and the kinds of, uh, you know, struggles around, you know, how things are supposed to work, how things are and how they're supposed to work. However, neurosciences is showing us that with billions of neurons capable of firing at, at any given moment, our, our brains provide less a description of reality than a set of what neuroscientist David, David Eagleman has called newspaper headlines. 
you know. A compressed sketch or a brief overview or a caricature of sorts. Once these sketches begin to be in place, they tend to become very robust, filtering new experience through the lens of what has come before, falling quickly into a pattern of neuronal firing. Now, people might disagree with that. Um, uh, that with repetition becomes an unconscious habit of mind, with the result being that we tend to perceive only what the brain already predicts we will see. You know, sort of like refrigerator blindness. I was looking for something the other day, and I couldn't, just looking, I couldn't see it. And I closed the door, and then I opened it, and I said, I think it's here, and I think this is an example, you know, an experience of refrigerator. It's like, Sharon, look. You know, I can't remember even what it was. Sure enough, it was there. You know, but it's sort of like, it's what happens politically now, isn't it? You know, that, that we, we, we just see what we already know to be true. That's all we can see. And it's not that people are being stupid or ignorant. It's how the brain works. So the good news, the job of our perceptions and stories, the stuff of which emotions are made, is to help create some sense of stability in all of this, to create a sense of a human self who is, at a relative level, relatively safe in this moment and also relatively stable over time. That's the good news. That's good. That's a good thing. Otherwise, we'd have, you know, 90 billion neurons firing at every given moment. We'd be a mess. That's the good news. Here's the bad news. The job of our perceptions and stories, the stuff of which emotions are made, is to help create some sense of stability in all of this. To create a sense of a human self who is, at a relative level, relatively safe in this moment and, and relatively stable over time. That's the bad news. <laughs> because it's actually not fundamentally true. It's relatively true, but it's not fundamentally true. And it's not even fundamentally true in, in just like in just an ordinary human sense, much less in terms of you know fundamental reality. You know, that it, that I mean even in terms of like, we use the example of just how differently we can perceive things. Okay. So we construct and identify a sense of self with these patterns of mind. This is who I am. This is who you are. And it's true. It's real. And it is, sort of. It is real on a relative level. As activity of the human mind, all of this is enormously important, with much practical value insofar as it is useful when we need to efficiently locate food, food resources, protection from danger, and potential mates for reproduction. There is an ordinary and functional and very real goodness in all of this. In the genius of evolution, well, that's proposing that evolution has a mind of its own, uh, which it doesn't, 
The human animal has over millennia developed strategies to efficiently sort and organize huge amounts of sensory data in order to defend our apparently separate existence, to attempt to stabilize what is constantly fluid and changing, and to help us be, or at least feel, relatively safe. Animals without these organizational strategies, paralyzed by too much complex information and or forgetful of past experience, were likely unable to make quick or life, quick life and death decisions, and so they did not survive to become our ancestors. So it's, it's a good thing, as long as we understand it for what it is. So from a Western perspective, emotions are unwholesome or destructive to the extent that they violate the sense of order or organization or safety or stability for ourselves internally, for ourselves in our relationships with others, you know, wider and wider circles with other individuals, with, you know, how we function in our in our social groups. We're social animals. We have to function well in our communities and our, you know, in a, and ultimately in our culture. So from a Western perspective, emotions are wholesome to the extent that they kind of um, function effectively um, in this organizational strategy. Um, I know you're familiar with Dan Siegel's acronym FACES, which I really like. He says emotions are wholesome to the extent that they allow us to, to be flexible, to be able to respond to, you know, whatever's happening, adaptive, to be able to respond uh, in, a, in an appropriate way, um, coherent, that all these different pieces of information somehow communicate with one another in, a, in, an, in an efficient way. We know kind of what it's like to be not so coherent, don't we, when we're, you know, when we're kind of at odds with ourselves, <laughs> you know. So when we're kind of functioning in a coherent way and clear, so functional, adaptive, coherent, energized to have you know enough energy to do what's uh, what's needed, and at the same time as to be stable, you know, so that we're not just reinventing the wheel every single second. So from a Western perspective, emotions are wholesome to the extent that this whole system, this incredibly complex and fluid system, functions efficiently and effectively to accomplish the goals of this human organism, um, to live, to grow, to, organ to you know, be executive, to you know, write checks and to find our car and go to work and mate and you know, go to the grocery store and eat food and all those good things that we need to be able to do for ourselves. At a deeper level, however, these very same perceptual strategies are a source of misinformation and ultimately profound suffering as the brain freezes the fluidity of life and relationship into neat and concrete categories as the brain tries to make us safe-er, separate-er, and certain-er <laughs> than we actually are or can be. So these very same perceptual strategies are a source of misinformation and that's actually the source, the Buddha would say, of our suffering. To the extent that we're actually getting, getting misinformed about the nature of reality. 
So remember, um, I read to you at the beginning, in Buddhist terms, what mind refers to. Um, I want to read it again to you. The fundamental nature of mind is our fundamental innate awareness. This pure awareness is the ground of all experience, all our thoughts, feelings, and perceptions. As such, it is naturally all-inclusive and wide open. Our dualistic thoughts, feelings, perceptions, and emotions tend to limit our attention to a very narrow sense of self as subject that seems to stand completely apart from others as object. Yet our fundamental pure awareness, even as it gives rise to dualistic thoughts, is a vast expanse of knowing that transcends all such limitations unfettered by concepts. Okay? So when Buddhists talk about mind, they're really talking about this much larger space. So indeed, when we're talking about emotions and difficult or destructive emotions, we're talking about something a little bit different, which in in the, in the case of afflictive or destructive emotions from this perspective, destructive emotions become those mind states. <clears throat> Actually, in Eastern thought, there isn't a separate word. You, you already know that. There isn't a separate word for emotion and, and mind. Um, there is no such thing. So the Buddha didn't talk about emotion because it wasn't a concept that was relevant. And even today in modern, their culture is modern, even in, I spend time in Bali, even in Bali, the, the, the notion of emotion is, is, is just not, it's not relevant. Um, and even in some Western cultures, um, I have a friend, uh, one time we were at a conference together, and I was just walking to dinner, and I said in a very matter-of-fact way, I said, I am so glad that you came, this is just so lovely to have you here. And she said to me, you Americans are so emotional. <laughs> you know, that it was a very different, a very different sense of, you know, how, how it works. Uh, it's just different. It's not wrong. You know, it's just, it's just different. So that this whole sense of um, affliction or destructive emotions um, are emotions that obscure from a Buddhist perspective, that obscure this luminous awareness. So that's a really a different meaning. So even, again, remember, even within Western psychology, those 34 scientists are thinking of emotions as something quite different from one another. And now we add Buddhist psychology, where emotion really refers more to a mind state that's more like the clouds that obscure the sun, you know. Uh, it's, a, it's really kind of a, a, a different understanding. This is Matthew Ricard. He said, when Buddhists talk about afflictions of mind not being an inherent part of the mind, so when emotions not being an inherent part of the mind, they are not claiming that these afflictions are not natural. Just like any other qualities of mind, these afflictions these afflictions are also aspects of the mind. Rather, that the claim is that afflictions have not penetrated into what is called the luminous nature of mind, which is seen as its most fundamental aspect. Okay. 
So when we're practicing and when we're reading, um, you know, our Buddhist texts about, if you will, emotion and destructive emotion, you know, it's important to understand that distinction. And it's not always obvious. Um, you've heard me, some of you have heard me say there's a, there's a book that's a conversation between Paul Ekman, who's a, who's a, a, a Western scientist, and the, and the Dalai Lama. And in my view, the book is incomprehensible because they're using words, but I, th I think they mean different things by the words. And they're agreeing. <laughs> you know, it's like, it's, it's a little, it's, it's, it's kind of crazy making. You can't really quite figure out what they're talking about. Um, because I, I, think, I think the editor ne neglected to kind of work it a bit to try to, to, and so it can be really, really confusing. And it can be the source, by the way, of that kind of confusion. You know, it's like, well, you know, you should love everybody. That means you shouldn't set boundaries. You know, it's, it's, a, it's, a, it's a mix of paradigms. Um, and that's where, you know, that's where some of that confusion comes in. So samsara, from a Buddhist perspective, literally means wandering on, wandering on the tendency to keep creating our world and then moving into it as though it was real. The tendency of the mind to keep creating a world and then living within that world as though it was real. It's, samsara is this human grasping onto experience, fixating on it, and in this way wandering over and over again in suffering. The Buddhist teachings in, inspire us to begin to see, I'm reading from my blog here, um, the Buddhist teachings inspire us to begin to see directly that suffering arises internally in the mind and not out there. Further, the Buddha saw the cause of suffering not in the neuronal patterns themselves, but in our delusions about them, our, our faith in them, our belief in them. He saw that if we crave for sensual pleasure or stability, if we identify too closely or cling too tenaciously to the brain's organizational processes ever determined to make them more real and solid than they actually are, we will suffer. He spoke of the cause of suffering as our being reborn over and over, not into the organization itself, but into clinging to the forms of that organization, trying to make permanent and more real than is true the moment-to-moment -moment arisings and passings of the various components of human experience. Oh, let's pause there. <laughs> he invites us to investigate the headlines and summaries that the brain invents. He teaches us to become disenchanted with these forms, to know them as impermanent and no more real, no more fundamentally real than a glob of, of foam, a water bubble, a cloud, or a mirage that changes in every moment. They are relatively real, but they are not fundamentally real. So again, you know, we're, we're working at different paradigms here, and it's important to understand that. This is not, however, to suggest that because things are empty of fundamental existence, 
that they are unimportant or meaningless. I think I'm reading from my blog again. Or that we should ignore important developmental tasks or that we fail to address or that we should fail to address psychological wounds that have impaired our abilities to function in comprehensive, integrated and wholesome ways. It is not to suggest that we allow injustice when we have the capacity to challenge and correct it. Just as Siddhartha came to recognize the importance of physical nourishment and a basic level of physical well-being, so too we are invited to basic psychological and behavioral health. Nevertheless, like Siddhartha, as we investigate the promise of a happiness that is independent of changing conditions, we are invited over and over to ever deeper and more subtle, le subtle levels of awareness. We can cultivate the capacity to let go of clinging when we see that these mental states or conditioned perceptions, narratives, and strategies when we see that they cycle into more suffering for ourselves and for others. So once again, suffering is the clue. You know, we're in a shoe that's too tight. Suffering is the doorway. We're locked somehow in a perception, in a mind state that's too small. So suffering is a good thing. <laughs> Not like suffering is a good thing, but suffering is a good thing. You see? <laughs> <laughs> suffering is, is useful. It's, whole, it's helpful because it's, it points us. It's a doorway. Um, Paul, uh, Philip Moffat talks about the nobility of suffering. You know, The nobility of noticing that first noble truth, dukkha, because it's a doorway. It's 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 like noticing that your shoe is too tight. Great, terrific. It's not about shoes, you know. Um, so it's not to suggest that we allow injustice when we have the capacity to challenge or change it. Really relevant for ourselves in this world. It's how do we do it? without cause without it arising from our own suffering and and causing more suffering what's what's called for I gave a talk the other night that was an appropriate response um, uh, Zen master Yun Men was asked at the end of his life he said you know somebody asked him one of the monks asked him um, uh, uh, what is the highest teaching of all of the Buddhas and patriarchs and he said, an appropriate response. You know, a response that's not guided by this narrow perception, but where we can really kind of open to the, the spaciousness of what's available and see what's needed here and what's mine to do. It's relevant for us as therapists. What's needed here and, and what's mine to do. As the enlightened Buddha, Siddhartha taught the Dharma not as a structure in and for itself, but as a path of inquiry, inquiry and practice 
that aims relentlessly to cross the floods of human suffering and reach the farther shore of complete and irreversible freedom from suffering. All right, I was going to skip that, but I'll read it. This is from the suttas. He says, Monks, I have taught the Dhamma compared to a raft for the purpose of crossing over, not for the purpose of holding on to. Even the Dhamma. Understanding the Dhamma as taught compared to a raft, you should let go even of Dhammas to say nothing of non-Dhammas. You know? The issue is suffering. What is the cause of suffering? What is the ending of suffering? What is the path? leading to the ending of suffering in this much wider perspective. Uh, 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 you know. In some sense, you know, from a Western perspective, it, you know, it's, it's the same goal, it's just in a more limited range. You know. Isn't it also, you know, where is suffering, where is the end of suffering? Where is suffering and where is the end of suffering on a relative level? And in our spiritual practice, it's where is suffering and the end of suffering on a much broader in, in a much broader spaciousness. Now that we in Western cultures at least are identifying so very many psychological rafts, important means of healing from past injuries and traumas, we can get enamored with the process of healing and make fixing ourselves or others a goal which could lead us paradoxically to refuse these deeper levels of healing. Not, not to mention the fact that it's impossible. We, we can't fix this, what is fundamentally a mistake. You know, this, this, kind, of, this, this kind of narrowing of, we can't fix it, we can't make it ultimately work. So we could get stuck on trying to fix ourselves, you know, or, 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 or fix, fixate uh, on that. We can be unwilling to let go of the raft when it's time as we cling to old perceptions, narratives, and identifications, or to an endless effort to fix the rafts in the name of working on ourselves. We all, we all know people who do that. Huh? Who, I had a client one time come to me who said, well, you know, I need a little more. Th- I've, only, I've been in therapy now for 11 years, and uh, it's just not, you know, I'm not finished, you know, and it's like, Maybe, maybe, maybe we're working at trying to fix something that that where the where the where the effort is kind of misguided. Um, we can imagine that there is un, an unchanging self to fix, or we can imagine that historical events have irreparably damaged a self. Of course, alternately, in a more spiritual form of this misunderstanding. We can imagine that past traumas have no real impact and do not need our attention, that we do not or should not need a raft to cross